Hello and welcome to another podcast. I'm Lorna Slater, co-leader of the Scottish Green Party. Hi, and I'm Elaine Gallagher. I'm one of the uh, Scottish Greens candidates for the general election. I'm standing in Glasgow North. And how has your general election ca- uh, campaign been going? Any highlights? Yeah, it's been lovely. The um, I'm standing um, not specifically as a queer candidate, but I have a very large queer con- um, constituency in Glasgow North. The, the bookshop category has invited me to have an evening there with them. And it was great to have all of the different people who, who go to the bookshop coming in to ask questions and um, be really supportive. And on Twitter, there's been a couple of really, really lovely uh, statements saying that they're so glad that I'm standing and giving hope for the, the fact that they've got somebody that can, they can vote for. That's wonderful. I'm also very glad that you're standing. Thank you so much for putting yourself out there and putting yourself forward for the party. I'm so proud of all of the women who've decided to do that for the Scottish Greens. It's something that I feel quite emotional about, particularly since Joe Cox's murder, Mm. that every woman who puts herself into the public sphere is literally putting her life in danger, but you're doing it because of what what you believe. And I'm just so proud of you and all of our women for doing that. Thanks. It's the... Women's network support has been marvellous um, in the time that I got asked to by cast to rejoin the party and stand for Holyrood and then uh, took on the Westminster candidacy. Um, in some of the hustings, that's been one of the questions is, um, how have you found support? And that's what I've been doing is talking up the, the women's network and the way that we work together to do the, the women's pledge that's all about how women are oppressed by patriarchy and all of the important things that, that women need to actually have support in from, from all of the candidates. And a recognition about the intersectional nature of feminism and that the things that really matter are you know, representation in politics, equal pay, that we recognise the intersectionality and people like myself who are cis, straight, white, middle-class women need to recognise our privilege within the, within the feminist context and not act as if we're the you know, default woman thing. So that's a, an exercise for us to recognise our our privilege where we have it. Well, that's been a, a problem with a lot of people who um, have been recognised as, yeah, making advances in women in politics, but Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister and then dragged the ladder up behind her. And so many other people want to do that too. So, yeah, uh, race is an issue. Um, look at the abuse that Diane Abbott is taking all the time. Shocking. And then there's the, uh, the, the attitudes to trans people, the uh, problem that non-binary people are uh, having and actually getting recognised as people in the first place. Um, the religious issues. And then at the same time, there's the important issues that face everybody, like fair pay for, for equal work and not to be um, patronised and not to suffer assault and all of those things. Um, one of the things that I would uh, love to do in the next year or so um, is to uh, support um, women who have been, or support everybody who's suffered um, intimate partner abuse. And that's a project that I'll be taking on with the Women's Network, hopefully in, in the future. So, Brilliant. Well, I look forward to your work on that. That's, of course, a very important issue. So the main topic of our podcast today, we were going to talk about sustainable housing, which is something Elaine knows about that I know nothing at all about. So, <laughs> Elaine, where do we start? What, tell me about sustainable housing. Um, 
Well, if you go back to the, the very basics of what sustainability is, the, if, if you call something sustainable, then yes, it has to be environmentally friendly, but also it has to be socially supportive and economically viable. Um, you, you have those three platforms and once upon a time I was an environmental and sustainability consultant. I did a lot of work for people like RBS Group and BT and um, the Shell company, uh, Shell and yeah, who else? Um, major banks. We, we got bought out by a building services consultancy called Harley Palmer Flat later on and then I was doing planning work. Now, when you look in Glasgow, there's, and, and this was a, a thing that my boss in the consultancy took on and ran with, um, and it's a gag by Billy Connolly. Um, he goes to the place where he was born and it's been levelled. And then he goes to Province Lordship, which is a couple of miles away in Glasgow, and it's a building that's been standing there since the 13th, 14th century. And he's asking, so what did they know then that we mm. don't know now? Interesting question. Yeah. What did they know then that we don't know now? Well, one of the things that they were doing was building in more durable materials. And instead of demolishing buildings, they were refurbishing them. Province Lordship has been going through uh, half a dozen different life cycles of different uses. Um, now it's a tourist information and historic centre. Once upon a time it might have been uh, somebody's home, then before that it was somebody rich's home. So what you need to, to do if you're thinking about a building being sustainable is not just what's the embodied impact of it, you know, how, how much embodied energy is going to take to get the materials there and put it up. It's also, what's it going to be used for? Um, once upon a time, I would be doing the BRE, the British, the, sorry, the Building Research Establishment's uh, Environmental Assessment Method, BRIAM. And people sell buildings based on their BRIAM um, qualifications. And a lot of the time it's a box ticking exercise like everything else. Um, are we using recovered materials? Yes, we are. Do we have uh, facilities for cyclists? Yes, we do. Site bike parking and shower uh, facilities? Yes, we do. Great, we get those tickets, the score adds up and this is what it is. But if you're building, you're building halfway along the M8 and there's no actual access for bikes. It's 40 miles away from anybody who works there from where they live. Nobody's going to actually cycle out along the M8 and make use of the bike facilities. For one thing, you shouldn't, you, you don't deserve to have that ticket in that case. Um, but the boxes just tick so it adds up. The, it's, it's a very, very blunt instrument. For another thing, when you site that building there, how much are people going to spend in fuel and in cost and in time to go out there and work? Can you actually justify putting all of the, say, the department, the bank or whatever else, in the middle of nowhere so that everybody has to go there mm. or you know can you divide up the the functions of the department and put them in places where people actually live and can commute do you actually have to have uh, a central hub with uh, communications being the way they are nowadays um, and can people telecommute would that not be a better social good so that parents can be closer to their children 
instead of having to spend three hours a day actually out of their lives and then spend the nine hours a day that the, the company insists that they spend in their, uh, their offices. That's half their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you look at the, the building, there are environmental considerations that are, yes, environmental impact, but are also what is the impact to the health and safety of the people who are working there. Is this a comfortable building that people can actually spend that half of their lives that they're spending as demanded by the company in this building? Is it healthy to do that? So all of these questions are things that developers don't actually ask. Uh, Developers get a plot of land, they get a deal to sell on the building, and then they throw it up with possibly some added benefits like a a higher BRAM ticket, or they throw it up for as cheaply as possible, and then they walk away, and that's their job done. The people who are operating and working in the building, they aren't concerned, or sorry, the, the, the developer isn't concerned whether or not it's expensive building to heat in the long mm. term. Um, that's part of the pre-am ticket, you know, what's the, the insulation going to be like? But the, the building developer um, can cut corners and has no real penalty if 10 years down the road the materials that they've been used that they've used are not quite as good quality and the building needs to be torn down and refurbished. That's really interesting. There's, so there's no accountability in terms of adhering to the standard and, and making sure that if they said it will only lose so much heat a year that it actually performs that way. Nope. Um, the, the, the accountability and the, um, the qualification to the standard are done by an external consultancy and the evidence is all taken to the building research establishment but there's a game called cost engineering where um, these are all of the things that are in the initial plan the building might actually get uh, a certification of some level then the building's built and the bre consultant follows the construction of the building but is also standing there watching as the developer says, well, that's going to cost a lot of money, let's not do it. And then how much does that shave off the BRE ticket? Um, is the bikes, bike rack that nobody's going to use cheaper than the recovered uh, materials from demolition waste? Well, yes, it is. Does that get us the point? Yes, it does. Okay, mm-hmm. we do that instead. So what would, what would a functional system to make this to fix it look, look like i presume it would involve more regulation and more oversight but what what actually would that look like what do we need what we need is a planning system that is actually taking regard of the overall use and position of the building in society um, do we need that building what's it going to do to the the traffic patterns environmental impact assessments for planning do you actually do this uh, but once again, the environmental impact assessment is very limited in scope to this is what the uh, the development is going to do right here, right now. Um, the, the lifetime of the development, um, that's another part of the, the environmental impact assessment. But once again, big developers with big money can 
uh, bring in expensive lawyers to bully a council through and push their development plan mm -hmm. through until it's built. And there's not a lot that the people who are actually living there or the people 20 years down the line um, who are going to be using the building have actually a say in this. So the, the, the planning laws um, have to be more systematic. Um, the, the council and the government, for, for all that we're actually... Um, I mean, the, the Greens are very much for as local government as possible. But at the same time, you need to actually empower the local government because the planning laws for central government, if you've got a big uh, development that's, say, £70 million Tesco development or something, um, if the locals are saying, yes, this is going to negatively impact our, our society, our uh, livability of our town and our traffic, um, then the next thing that happens is that the developer with huge amounts of money goes to their pals in Westminster and exerts political pressure. Yeah, it was something I was talking about with Rosemary uh, on a couple of podcasts ago because she was talking about trying as a local community activist trying to fight against planning permissions and we were particularly, we the Greens I mean, are particularly frustrated by the SNP Tory stitch up on the planning bill which removed or didn't enable the right of appeal of community groups so the developer puts in a plan, the community objects the developer just resubmits the plan and they can on appeal. The community group doesn't have the same right. So how on earth are communities ever going to have a say in what happens to them when the developers are really prioritized? This is a problem that's happened in Glasgow. It's really a, a, a local issue around, for example, the, um, the, the there's a green space in the middle of in the middle of Kelvin Bridge that has been fought over between the community and the developers for ages. Um, and yeah, the developer has money to throw into uh, appeals, but the community doesn't. And it's all um, run by volunteers, presumably, community volunteer activists who have jobs and lives and kids and health issues and all the things that normal people have. This is it. And yeah, th there have been some demonstrations outside the city chambers and stuff, but um, that's the time out of their lives and the, t the, the, the people who are taking their children from schools and from um, play school and nursery so that they can actually stand in front of the, the, the council and beg for them not to destroy their play space. But also, um, the, the, the wider plan and the wider considerations of um, what do we want for a livable city? Um, how are we going to integrate uh, a unified transport uh, system? How are we going to integrate a unified power system so that we've only got one point where we can put a district heating plant and build it from being um, oil and gas based to, for example, uh, a local heat pump? All of these things, they're things that the the individual developer on his individual plot of land doesn't care about. And at the moment, the council doesn't have a unified plan for this big part of the district. Um, we want to have this environmental impact from it. 
Um, once upon a time, the Glasgow City Council actually did do a plan like that. Um, they ripped away all of the buildings that Billy Connolly lived in and put a motorway all the way through the city. Do you know, I've seen plans to do something similar to Edinburgh, where I live, and I'm so grateful that that didn't happen. The idea of a motorway through the heart of a city, cities should be where people gather, where people shop and eat and meet their friends. The idea that you would motor through the center of a city and not see any of it seems to me a shocking waste of human kind of effort. It's true, and, and that's the problem that the, the, the sort of central planning, um, that the weakness that it does have, is that the, the powers and the interests that are going to make money in building a motorway but aren't going to make money in having a, a, a livable town centre. A nursery or a play park doesn't make money. That's exactly right, and the... Um, what's the word? Um, the legislative capture is the word. Um, yeah, I don't know that term. Legislative capture is when, um, for example, the civil servants who are um, in the department that's, for example, oh, sorry, regulatory capture, um, is when the, the civil servants that are responsible for regulating, for example, energy, are employed by the oil and gas company. Um, or, you know, the... It's, it's not, or they're, they're formally employed by the oil and gas company, or they go and work for the civil service and then go and get a job after that in the oil and gas company. And they all go to the same conventions and they all drink in the same uh, cafes afterwards or eat at the same restaurants, and they're all best pals. So the interests of the, the, the interests that are being regulated are effectively running the regulators. That's so interesting. So I didn't know that happened with planning as well. I've heard about that happening with audits of big corporations, you know, like tax audits and stuff, where you have this um, shifting pattern of people who work for the tax office, write loopholes into legislation, and then go consult with companies to show them where the loopholes are to help them avoid paying taxes. But I didn't know that happened in development too. Works everywhere. Um, the, the There's a lot of people in the energy uh, regulation that have very strong links to um, energy companies, for example. Oil and gas specifically, it would be nicer if they had strong links to renewable energy, but that's not happening at the moment. And it's the same in transport planning. Um, the The problem is that this can go to the level of corruption. Um, Beeching, who did the the plan that decimated the, um, the, the railway links that served people, had significant interests in the 50s in road building. Of course he did, That yes. And I know a similar story in North America where a consortium of General Motors and a few other car companies bought and shut down the tram systems in cities all across America. And get this, they were taken to court by the government, found to be an illegal cabal, and mm. were fined, get this, $5,000. Wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So that's interesting that this has happened everywhere where businesses have shut down public transports and public systems in order to develop things that will help them make money and not at all work in the interests of the people who live there. Well, yeah, I mean, companies are there to make money and what they're going to do is make money however they can. And if that includes influencing politicians, then that's the thing that they're going to try. And that's where we have to have... Um, Honest politicians, to be honest, and honest civil servants, and better protection um, for the people who are 
suffering these pressures because in some cases they are actually suffering it. Um, think about the, the low-level uh, civil servants who are being told to enforce a law that's just been agreed by the, the tax office accountant that you were talking about. Um, HMRC have got to do what they're told. The, the people who are actually chasing the, the tax evaders at the lowest level don't get to go and chase after the tax evaders that are, for example, Amazon, because they're not officially tax evaders. And it's the same with building. That's really interesting. So there's a couple of things that you've uh, spoken about that I find really interesting that I want to ask a bit more about. And one of them is something that's very close to all of our green hearts and this idea that so much of what happens in government at the moment is being done to people. There is not a buy-in, it seems to me, at any level of government about seriously getting people involved in what happens in their communities, allowing people real say. So for Greens, um, participatory democracy, that idea that everybody should have a say in what happens to them and their community is core to what we believe. But it seems to me so much of governments are desperate to do things to people, impose a motorway, impose a building, all these things. What are your views? I think that's right. I think that the... Um the system is kind of developed from historic um, privilege of all of the landowning class. Um, I was reading Andy uh, Whiteman's book, The Poor Had No Lawyers, and it's an eye-opener completely. And I think that the, the point of view of effectively the upper class and the ruling class has kind of made its way into the managerialism and the careerism of most of the politicians who are in Westminster at the moment. And you know, that's why I'm actually standing because I'm not one of those people and I want to poke them in the ribs and get them to do the job. That's really interesting. I hadn't really clocked how radical therefore our vision of democracy is that ordinary people like you and me who are not descendant of gentry or landowners and who don't have titles, that ordinary people should have a right to say what happens to them is actually really, really radical? It is. And, you know, the, the Labour Party tried it 100 years ago and then the, the Tory party 40 years ago managed to put a spoke in that revolution. And I think that the Labour Party is still bound by its history and trying to get back its glory days. And the Greens are kind of the cutting edge of that movement of, of making the, the responsibility or moving the responsibility for their own governance back to the people. That's really interesting. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about in what you mentioned was right at the beginning, and that's about repairing things. So there's a, an idea in the green movement, It's a, again, it's a radical idea, which is the right to repair. Um, so, so much of what we buy is not repairable. The idea is that you throw it away, your phone, you throw it away and buy another one, your computer, you throw it away and buy another one. My blender in my kitchen is part one, like one little plastic part of it is wearing down. The rest of it's great. Can you replace that part? No, you can't. Mm. So there's this idea of right to repair, that we should all, everything that we make as a society should be repairable, that there should be nothing that we throw away. And it's interesting because you mentioned that about buildings too. It's true. Um, buildings have a design life these days. And the, in, in some cases, it's because the technology has moved on um, and it can be refurbished or it's expensive to refurbish. Um, but also, in some cases, the, the material is just only so durable. Um, steel buildings in the, the 60s were made with plasterboard and chipboard that only lasts about six, 
conflict for 20 years. They were full of asbestos too. They were full of <laughs> asbestos too, yeah. Um, and, you know, what they were doing was there was a demand for cheap buildings. Mm. People weren't willing to spend so much money. Um, people who were willing to spend so much money were giving it to developers who were making an extra profit out of not giving them the quality that they needed. So there's a lot of buildings that were built in the, the 50s, post-war, 60s and 70s that are really, really shoddy. Mm. Um, and nowadays designers design with an intentional life of, say, I mean, the, the, the Millennium Dome um, that was built to celebrate the turning of a thousand years had a design life of 25. Wow. It's basically a tent. So there's something, I, I did an interview with ITV a couple of weeks ago, and it was an hour-long interview, so not every bit that I, everything that we spoke about made it to the final edit. And one of the things that I spoke about was this idea so, so the interviewer was trying to kind of trap me in the way that journalists do and was trying to get me to say that if we're going to make a green future, that it's going to be worse, like the green future, we're all going to be miserable. And I don't believe that. And it's, I don't think that's true. And one of the things that I think is about a green future that is wonderful is the idea that we will build to last, that we will build things that are quality, mm. that we won't buy throwaway shoddy goods, that when we make something, it will be well designed and made of good materials and it will last. And this will improve all of our quality of life, not only removing sort of disposable plastics, but bringing back craftsmanship. And if we're all working four day working week and not frantically rushing around, you know, if we're talking about quality rather than quantity of goods, mm -hmm. then craftsmanship, we can take time to make things and really enjoy them. And I think that that's a wonderful vision for the future. I think it's lovely too. Um, my parents bought my bedroom furniture when I was two and I'm still sleeping in it. Um, it's made out of Canadian maple and yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it needs a wee bit of refurbishment, but it's solid wood. Right to repair. Yep. <laughs> um, but the, the consumerism that's a major problem right now, um, that's driving things like the, the fast fashion industry mm. and the, the, the idea that in order to keep on making money, you have to keep on making things. Um, that's the, the, the unsustainable economics of it. And in the building industry, um, an architect, for example, is designing a thing that will look pretty. The developer is making the thing um, to, to go up as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. And then they want to keep their jobs 20 years later. So they want to be able to actually rebuild on that plot. You know, how much good is it going to do the dozens of developers and hundreds of architects when we've built uh, a community and a town that is going to last for 150 years without needing refurbished, you know, where are the jobs going to go? So you have this kind of mentality in the developers and in the, the construction industry that, um, yeah, this, this is driving the design life of buildings and the design life is short. But there's never any shortage of work to do. That's what drives me mad about that kind of question. Oh, where are the jobs going to go? There's always plenty of work to do, from potholes in the road to teaching children to, you know, healthcare. There will always be a need to do work, but and more creative work, more human-centric work. There's always jobs to do. It's just a question of how you move resources around to fund that. 
This has been a brilliant conversation. I think we could go on, but we probably need to wrap up. So I was going to ask you, Elaine, so you're, you, well, we're both candidates on the Holyrood list for Holyrood 2021. And next year, we're going to be, the Greens are going to be starting to campaign for that. We want to get more women into Holyrood, more green MSPs. How are you feeling about that campaign? Well, I think that would be brilliant. I'm sixth on the list in Glasgow, so I'm a support candidate. And I'm really looking forward to canvassing on behalf of Nadia and Kim as the two women that we've got as our lead candidates. Um, And to be doing policy work and working on things that we've been talking about. How do the Greens actually go to Holyrood and put together uh, proposals for sustainable cities? And how do we do the economics of making sure that people have jobs once the thing's built? What do they do next? All of that kind of question, I'd love to be in on the answering of that and then in on supporting the, the Holyrood MSPs as they put it into legislation. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been really interesting. Thanks again.